You belong, the power of circles. Those are powerful words, aren't they? It's great to be here with each of you this morning and with those of you who are watching online. I am uh, Diane Thatcher. I'm one of the pastors here at Meadow Park, and I am just so excited to be here and thankful for the privilege to be able to speak with you this morning. This is our last Sunday that we're doing name tags, um, but that doesn't mean it's the last Sunday that we're going to be paying attention to each other and who we are, and hopefully you have learned some names that you didn't know before over the last four weeks. And just uh, the thing today was your favorite uh, vacation destination, so just take a minute and just shout out your favorite uh, vacation destination. One, two, three, go. I agree. So wonderful places. I just said sunshine. I'm just going to drive until I see the sun. That's one, that's my favorite favorite vacation. A few weeks ago, um, I kind of did a bucket list vacation. Took the grandkids and of their parents, of course, they had to come. But uh, <laughs> took the grandkids and we went to Alaska. And my grandkids are grown, so this was six adults, and we had a wonderful time. One of the highlights of our trip to Alaska was climbing Mount Healy in Denali National Park. And this was, um, yeah, there they are. Aren't they beautiful? Those three. Um, I say it's a highlight because when you think you're going to die <laughs> and you don't, <laughs> it's a highlight of the trip. <laughs> this hike was straight up. It was three miles straight up. And we thought that three miles was a loop. No. It was three miles straight up. And when 20-year-olds are saying, we think we're going to die, <laughs> then you don't feel so bad when you're like, I think I already did like <laughs> a mile ago. But it was challenging. But you know what was even more challenging than climbing to the top of Mount Healy to see that amazing view of, of the Denali Park. What was even harder was six full-grown people in a 30-foot RV that technically said it slept six, <laughs> but comfortably slept three. <laughs> yes, we tested the boundaries of community, let me tell you. We had a great vacation. We saw and did things that none of us had ever seen or done before. It was wonderful being together. And even with you know, the challenges, I will be honest with you, I will never do that again. <laughs> I came away thinking, why would anyone ever buy an RV? This is crazy. Now I know, those of you there, I know it, maybe we just had a, a little different experience. But as we've been talking about community and as we've been talking about stepping into life groups and taking this um, kind of a leap into allowing yourself to be known by other people, I can imagine that there are a few of you here and maybe some of you who are online who are saying, yeah, I'm having that same visceral reaction to that idea that you had to that RV. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't know if I would ever want to do that. It feels scary, threatening to allow ourselves to be known deeply by other people. 
it's also kind of scary to know someone else at a deep level. It's much easier, much more convenient to kind of stay at that surface level, to kind of wave to each other when we're in the lobby. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? <sighs> Great, see you next week. Yeah, I've had those conversations too. I had them when I first came here so many years ago. And my husband would say, go talk to that person. And I would be like, I don't know what to say. He was good at that. I wasn't. It may feel as daunting to you as climbing Mount Healy did to me. Some of you may even be thinking, okay, if this is what it means to be a part of this, why on earth would anyone want to become a Christian? Why on earth would you want to become a Christian? I think it's a valid question. Especially the way that Christians are perceived, especially in our Western culture in the U.S. I actually did something. I went on Google and I just put in, you know, why would anyone want to become a Christian? Googled it just to see what would, would come up. I can't tell you. I can't read some of the responses to you. Yeah. Yeah, uh-oh, it's right. There were some positives, of course, and there were some things that, that were positive, but mostly here's things that, that I could say to you that came up. Christians are jerks, delusional, judgmental, hypocritical, dangerous. They're predators. They claim they're being treated unfairly. They claim they're being persecuted. Christians are entitled. They want things their own way. And when they get, don't get their own way, they throw a fit. Christians only see other people as projects. Christians care more about being right than being in relationship. I even pulled up, I thought, okay, here's, there was a, a Christian site that came up when I was Googling, and I thought, okay, I'm ready for something positive. I pulled up the Christian site. Here's what the Christian site said. Why would I want to be a Christian? The first point is because of Jesus, not the church. I was like, ow, ow, ow. I don't know about you, but the perception of the church isn't very favorable, and that bothers me. It's really nothing new. I mean, there's a quote that's attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. I don't know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, I don't know if he actually said this or not, but the quote attributed to him is, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. And what's the implication, right? It's that... You know, we know what Jesus stands for, but we don't see that in the people who say that they're following Jesus. Carrie Newhoff, who a, has a podcast and he's an author and, and a pastor, he says this, Christians don't have an image problem, we have an integrity problem. <laughs> I don't know about you, but all those statements make me really uncomfortable it's like uh, there's a gut check. I want to look in the mirror and I want to say, is that me? I don't want that to be me. Please don't let that to me be me, Jesus. But here's the thing. I think our whole world right now has an integrity problem. Do you agree? As a society, we've lost trust in our institutions. We've lost trust in each other. And that loss of trust has created levels of anxiety and isolation and apathy that are unprecedented in my lifetime. See, I want the church to be different. I want us to be different. And I ask myself, if there's no difference between the church and the world, 
then why on earth would anyone want to be a Christian? If there's no difference between in here and out there, then why on earth would anyone become a Christian? Is this too heavy for you? It's heavy, isn't it? It kind of, it, 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 it hits us. It's like, what are we doing? And if we figure out what we're doing, let's do it the best that we can. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, A Mark of a Christian, he says this, our relationship with each other, our relationship with each other, is the criterion, criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Let me say that again. Christian community, how we love and treat each other, is the final apologetic. So let's remind ourselves of what some of that community of the early church looked like. Let's just take a quick look again at Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, although the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, to prayer, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple every day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. It's a beautiful picture, right? We've been, we've been looking at this. This is what we long for, isn't it? But we know it's not easy. And we know it kind of gets messy. But this is what we long for, what we're hoping for. They were soaking in the apostles' teaching. They were spending time together. They were taking care of each other's needs. They were worshiping together. What a sweet spirit of worship we had here this morning, just in those few minutes of, of coming in. What a blessing it is to my heart to come and worship with you. And it says that their numbers were growing. Now, their numbers grew kind of dramatically. In Acts 1.15, we're told that there are about 120 believers. In Acts 2.41, just a little bit later, day of Pentecost, 3,000, it says, are added to the church in one day. In Acts 4.4, it says the number of men who now believe are 5,000. And when they're counting the men, the scholars kind of say, okay, if there's 5,000 men, there's probably about 15,000 believers now with women and children. And then in Acts 20.21, I'm sorry, 21.20, it says there are myriads of believers. And the myriad was kind of a term for tens of thousands. Well, 10,000. So it's like multiple myriads. So tens of thousands. And so in the span of 25 years, about, the church grew from 120 to what scholars um, think was at least 50,000 people or more. That's dramatic growth, isn't it? The Lord was adding to their number daily. 365 days daily. So what was happening that so many people changed their allegiances from worshiping their gods to worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? See, for the first time, and I think this is the key, for the first time, they were hearing about a God who loved them. Here was a God who loved his creation. 
And maybe I'm simplifying it a little bit, and if I am, forgive me, but for the Gentiles in Antioch and the surrounding area, every aspect of their life revolved around religion. You know, sometimes we think pagan, we think, well, they didn't have a religion. That's not true. Every aspect of their life revolved around religion. Their family, their job, their military service, their civil and political offices all revolved around religion and patron gods. And so they had to worship those gods. They had to appease those gods. They had to please them. They feared them. They uh, worshiped them. But there really wasn't a precedent for a God who loved you or who you could love in return. church was growing larger and smaller at the same time. And this wasn't just God's way of caring for believers. It was really God's way of multiplying believers. Each day, those who were being saved, people were coming to the Lord, not because of necessarily the signs and wonders or the food or that. They were coming because they were experiencing something radical, something totally different than what they had experienced before. They were experiencing relationship, relationship with the God who says that he's their creator, who loves them, and relationship with other believers. See, when we share our resources, which is wonderful with each other, that is a win for the body of Christ. But when we share the love that Jesus has for us, with other people, that is a win for the kingdom of God. Many of us have heard this, God loves you. We've heard that many of us most of our lives. But we can't miss how radical this was and still is. Can you hear those words? God loves you. The creator of the universe loves you. Feel how radical that is. Let that seep into your soul. We're told that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, his only son, who took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, lived as one of us, died for us to pay our debt of sin on the cross, and rose again so that we could have eternal life. Yes, yes, yes! <laughs> that is what he did. But I want to tell you this. He also came to show us how to live as God's children here on earth. It's not just about a destination I don't know if it'll be a vacation or not. A destination in heaven, vacation in heaven. He came to show us how to live as God's children because he knew there would be generations and generations of people who would need to hear the good news. And it would be up to us, his people, to share it with them. See, the purpose of Christ-centered community is to become more like Christ, but the key to Christ-centered community is sacrificial love. In John 15, Jesus said this, This is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is my command, not suggestion, love each other. I don't think people were attracted to the early church because of what they believed. I think they were attracted because of the way believers treated each other and the way they treated people outside of their circles. This was radical community like no other. The early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries, okay? This was unprecedented, right? 
Throughout the book of Acts, we see this remarkable unity between people of different races. Paul says later in a letter, he says there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. He's saying, look, we're all equal. When we come to the cross of Christ, we come equally. That was radical. The early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. Okay, they're living in an honor-shame society, and this is where you take revenge. You get retaliation. You get even. And all of a sudden, there's a community of people who are saying, no, we're not going to live like that. We're going to pray for our enemies. We're going to love our enemies. We're going to forgive, and we're going to reconcile. That was radical. The early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. And it was expected then to take care of your own, your own tribe, your own people. But you, didn't, you weren't obligated to do anything for anybody else. But Christians did that. During the urban plagues, Christians were the ones who didn't flee the cities. They were the ones who stayed and cared for the sick. And many of them died doing it. The early church was a community committed to caring for the most vulnerable, widows and orphans. Christians rescued unwanted infants from dying of exposure. They took in orphans. They cared for widows. I mean, this was a community that made a difference. This was radical. They saw the Imago Dei, the image of God in every single person, and they said, you have value. God loves you. They were called, I love these nicknames, they were called the reckless ones. Isn't that awesome? I just, like because they were just, they just, they were out there doing and taking care of people. They were the reckless ones, the zealous ones, the lovers of labor. I mean, <laughs> I was like, who came up with these? I don't know. But I love these nicknames. I love these nicknames that they had. People of Christ didn't merely uh, take care of the wounded and the disenfranchised. They went out looking for them. And they found them and they brought them in. Until this time, suffering was thought of as a punishment, a judgment from the gods. That if you were suffering, if you were being punished, you know what? That was your lot in life. Good luck. Radical change. Christians said, no, suffering is an opportunity for us to show the care and compassion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because that's what they saw Jesus do. Completely changed that worldview. The radical witness of the early church was sacrificial love. And I don't know, maybe this is kind of heavy today. And if it is, I'm not sorry. <laughs> but here's what, I, here's, here's what God was impressing upon me. And, I, and I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. I say, if we've lost our way, if we've lost our way along the Jesus way, I think this is where it is. See, in our Western mindset, we don't do sacrificial love very well. Our consumer mindset says what? What's in it for me? We're like, how do I get what I want? Our competitiveness, our culture says, you know, what do I need to do? How can I get ahead? Who do I need to step over to get to that next level? And we usually define success in monetary terms. It's kind of our culture to, to a degree. But Jesus gave us a different example. In John 13, we have this example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And I love this scripture because it says, he knew his hour had come to leave the earth 
And so he wanted to do something memorable. He wanted to leave something that they would not forget. And so it says, he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Oh, Jesus. Don't you just love him? He says, he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped it a, a towel around his waist, he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He began to perform the lowest act of service that he could think of in that moment. And then he says, after washing their feet, he's like, do you understand what I'm doing? Do you get it? Do you get what it means? Do you get sacrificial love? Do you get what it means to put someone else first? To be able to take the lowest position and say, you know what, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to take care of you. I tell you, no slave is greater than their master, no messenger more important than the one who sends the message. And then he says this, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Christian community, the final apologetic. Jesus calls us to love not in a superficial or abstract way, but in a deep face-to-face, life-on-life, transformative way. And yeah, it's messy. To love like Jesus, we need to say, I don't care about status. I need to set aside my need for justice. You know, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. And Judas was just about to betray him. We need to think, serve each other, and have that motivated by love. We have to get our hands dirty. Jesus wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. And he taught us that you can't wash someone's feet from a distance. Do you know you can't do Christ-centered community from a distance? We have to be face-to-face. We have to be together so it can be transformative. Jesus didn't give a specific system or a program with which to grow a relationship with him. He gave us something better. He gave us each other. When I uh, was in Honduras about five years ago, I was there. It was right before I was um, diagnosed with cancer, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was actually struggling physically, and the cancer had created a a really super fatigue in me, and I I really didn't know what was going on because I hadn't been diagnosed yet, but I was in Honduras. Oh, boy, we're going to get to look at that picture the whole time. Okay, so, yeah, I actually had dark hair then, Um, but this is Henry Alvarenga. He is um, the director of Heart to Honduras in Honduras. And at the time, um, we were all taking the hike around the, the area, and we, um, there was this, another mountain. Mountains are in my life. Um, there was like, an, it was really more of a hill, but it was a tall hill. And, and it was kind of steep and craggly, you know. And everybody, uh, I was there, by the way, with a group of pastors who were kind of exploring Honduras and partnerships in Honduras. And uh, it, they were all men, by the way, except me. And... I don't know why I said that. <laughs> they just were. So they, they all like hurried up and they were all like, we're going to get to the top of this hill. And they're all like 
flew ahead and like climbed to the top of this hill. And as I was going, I was realizing, oh my gosh, I'm having a real struggle. I cannot breathe. You know, I, and I kept slowing down and stopping. And I thought, I don't, I'm not going to make it. And I, it was kind of concerning because I was like, what is wrong with me? And all of a sudden, right beside me was Henry. And he, I'll never forget it. It's going to make me emotional. He said to me, he goes, it's okay. Take your time. We can stop as many times as you need. Take a deep breath. Don't worry about it. We got time. Do what you need to do. I'm right here. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to walk with you. And Henry and I, very slowly, made our way to the top of this hill. Just about the time everybody else was ready to leave. I'm like, come on! <laughs> but I will never forget that. It felt like Jesus had come alongside me and said, I know you're struggling. I know you're having a hard time. But it's okay. Because I'm here. And I'm going to walk beside you. And I'm not going to leave you. And we're going to make it. It's okay. And I can't think of a better picture of Christian community. He wasn't worried about appearances. He wasn't worried about time. He wasn't worried. See, we had different goals. The group of pastors, everybody's goal was to get to the mountain, right? The top of the mountain, hill, whatever it was. All the pastors ran up to the top of the hill, and they got that goal. Henry's goal was different. Henry's goal was, we're all going to get to the top of the hill together. It wasn't just about getting there. It was about getting there together. And I thought, thank you for that picture of Christian community, God. And it has stayed in my heart and in my mind all of these years. And I am so grateful for that because it reminds me and sometimes when I'm rushing ahead or thinking about what's going to happen, you know, for Christmas <laughs> this year, <laughs> yes, we're thinking that, I think to myself, okay, let's make sure we all get there together. It's important that we all get there together. See, I don't want to just play church. You know, sometimes we're just thrilled if we all show up. We're like, yay, we all showed up. Yeah, we're great. And yes, I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that I'm here. But Jesus said, I want your life. They were about sharing the good news of God's salvation. That was more important than anything else. And they shared Jesus' teachings. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. They raised the dead. I don't know about you. I mean, I, I, have a, yeah, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that, I'll be honest. I want, I want to see that. I really want to see that. But I'm ready for God-sized things in my life. I'm ready for more God-sized things in my life. Jesus didn't say people will know we're Christians by what we believe. He made the litmus test very clear. He said, people will know that you're my followers when you love other people the way that I have loved you. We all want to be honored. 
valued, recognized, and loved. Imagine a world where people weren't sure what we believed, but they were drawn to us by how well we treated each other and how well we treated people. Sacrificial love. We have a lot of knowledge of God, but it's informational. What we need is an experience of God that is transformational. My brother Bill um, passed away uh, a few months ago. And before he passed away, he became a Christian. And we have been talking about Christ for, for years, really. He's the rebel at heart. Love him dearly. And he, had a, he struggled. He had a hard time just coming to... to he, would, he was reading the Bible, and he was saying, you know, the Bible's like no other book. It's like you read it, and, and it's, it's like this lie that like it speaks to you. No matter where you open it up, it's, it talks to you. And all of these things. But he was struggling because he had this idea that he had to do something, that he had to somehow change himself first before he would be accepted by God. And even though he and I had talked for a long time, he finally said to me after he had accepted Christ, he said, you know, don't take this the wrong way, Diane. He said, but, you know, you, you came to Christ early. I, I accepted Christ when I was 13. He goes, I just looked at you and thought, you're just, you're just good. You're always good. Now, I wasn't. But his perception was, well, you're just a good person. He goes, but then I looked at Jim, who's my other brother, who accepted Christ about um, seven years ago and was baptized. <laughs> and he goes, and I saw transformation in him. <laughs> and he goes, and then I knew, somehow it dawned on me, it wasn't about me changing me. It was about me accepting what God had already done for me, right, and coming to him. And I love that. I love that he said, you know, I just, I didn't have to change me. I just had to believe what God had done for me. To the community of Christ is the face of God in the world today. My brother was the face of Christ to my brother. And our job is to make the invisible God visible. And yeah, we do it imperfectly. But God uses our imperf imperfections to shine his light. In 2 Corinthians it says, you know, God shined light in the darkness. And then he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. So that the all-surpassing power of God can be seen through our lives. See, through the imperfections of our lives, that's the implication, that it's not from ourselves, it's the power of God. The bottom line is that we're called to be a community that is accepting of those who are exploring their faith, that we treat those who are trying to figure everything out and clean up their lives just as we would treat the most honored person that we can think of here. A community in which people can be themselves, that we can depend on each other. We're called to be a community that we don't stand in judgment of one another's fault, flaws, but we call one another to become our better selves, the people God created us to be, the people who love other people the way that Jesus loves us. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, 
seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The Lord was adding to their number daily. Are you still with me? Okay. We need to learn the language of grace. You know, there are 50 plus one another's in the New Testament that help us think about this language of grace. It goes like this, accept one another, just as Jesus accepted you. Accept those whose faith is weak, without quarreling over silly matters. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If you think of yourself as important, don't. <laughs> I paraphrased. <laughs> Let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We need to learn the language of grace. Did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I speak words of healing? Did I roll up my sleeves to serve? Did I practice humility? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? Did I sacrifice? These are real questions. And I want to say just a word to if you're here today or if you're watching online and you're not a believer yet and you're just kind of exploring this idea of, you know, why would I want to become a Christian? I want to say that God wants to do something God-sized in your life. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to say to you especially, that God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. I hope you hear how radical that is, how wonderful that is. He loves every person he created, including you. Christ did for you what nobody else can ever do for you. He paid your debt of sin on the cross. And you talk about, you know, this debt conversation happening right now there is a debt that we owe that we can never repay but Christ paid it for us he paid it when he willingly died on the cross for your sins and at some point you're going to have to make a decision about what you're going to do about it and we're here for you the Lord added to their number daily but you don't have to do it alone we're here for you. Now I want to talk to those of us who are believers, who call ourselves Christians. <clears throat> we live in a time of horrendous divisions across the globe, across our nation, in our cities. Right? Anybody disagree? We have a tremendous opportunity maybe like never before, for us, for the church, for believers to show a radical, sacrificial love of God. Here and out there, when you walk into your workplace, when you walk into your school, when you walk into your home, we have the opportunity to sow, to demonstrate God's love, to demonstrate the love that Jesus gave to us. 
I have started praying this week and just this morning prayer. I just say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Use me to love someone toward you today. I don't know why that seemed radical for me to say that this week. I was like, let me point someone towards you. Let me reach someone. Let me, and I thought, you know, Lord, let me love someone toward you today. Help me to demonstrate love and servanthood by the power, by your power in all I say and do. I'm available to you. Guide me by your spirit. And I think if we start, I challenge you to start your day. Lord, I'm, I'm available to you today. Help me love someone toward you today. Who just said that? And the help of your spirit. God showed his love for us when he sent his only son. Real love is this, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Dear friends, since God loved us this much, we must love each other. And as we kind of crystallize everything here, I just want to say, um, let's just talk about how we treat each other here, believers. I want to just give us three things to try to remember. As we're in our uh, life groups, as we're in the hallways, as we're in the lobbies, as you're, we're emailing each other, as we're texting each other, would you do these three things for me? First, would you believe the best of the person that you're talking to or emailing or texting or walking past? Would you believe the best about the other person? Not the worst. Would you believe the best? That they're well-intentioned, that they love Jesus, that they're doing their best. Would you believe the best about the other person? Would you pray for them? Not at them, by the way. You know the prayer's at them. Oh, Lord, you're going to have to help that person because they're off the rails. Don't pray at them. Pray for them. If you're struggling to believe the best of someone, pray for them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray for your heart to change towards them. And then number three, imagine. Take a moment and imagine what it would look like to love that person the way that Jesus loves you. And then do it. What would it take to love that person that I'm struggling with the way that Jesus loves me? And when that picture comes in your mind, do it. We're going to take communion together today. And uh, <clears throat> communion has kind of taken on a beauty for me recently that um, it's always been beautiful, but uh, it's taken on a little bit more poignant meaning for me recently. As I told you, my brother accepted Christ before he passed away. It was actually four days uh, before he passed away that he was baptized, and uh, he had he he was coming to this place of accepting Christ and, and in his spirit, and he texted me, he was in ICU, and he said, would you be willing to come to the, to the hospital and baptize me? I said, I was already in my car. <laughs> I was, yes, of course. And as I was going, driving up there, um, he's in Akron, as I was driving up there to baptize him, um, I I don't even know why I thought of it, but I, I stopped and I got some of our 
cute little packaged <laughs> communion cups that we all love. And, uh, and I took those with me. And after, um, and so there was my brother Jim and my brother Bill and I in the room. And we, I baptized Bill and he made his profession of faith. And then um, I said, you know, Bill, I brought communion. Do you think you'd want to take communion? And he was like, oh, I've always wanted to do that. You know, I've never done that. My brother was 70 years old. He'd, he'd never taken communion. I didn't even know that. And, and so we took communion. Before we took communion, I said to him, I said, you know, I said, we've always been brother and sister by blood. But now taking communion, we're brother and sister in the spirit. And that just hit me so profoundly. Because as strong as our bonds were as brother and sister, do you know there's an even stronger bond? It's the bond of the spirit. You know, brother and sister by blood is temporary. Brother and sister by spirit is eternal. I mean, it just hit me. I was just blown away. And he was like, now I'll be in heaven. I can, I can spend eternity with, with both of you. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is it. This is what community is. <laughs> like it or not, we're going to be with each other forever. <laughs> so we better get to figure out how to live with each other now. Jesus said, you are the body of Christ. Actually, Paul said this. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. As we get ready to take communion, I'm going to give you time. I'm going to let you take communion on your own, but I, I want us to do it with such a sense of being together. But I want to, I want to give you this time to kind of do it as we go into the, the song that, um, that our band and our worship team is going to sing with us. I just, I just feel led to say, if, if as you're getting ready to take communion, if there is a, someone that you have a grudge against, if there is someone that needs, uh, that you need to forgive, something that you need to let go of, I just want to invite you to do that this morning. If you need to go to the prayer stations and pray, if you need to walk across the room while we're singing and say to someone, you know, I've had a grudge in my heart and I just want to say I'm sorry then do it. We love you. We all love each other here. We're not going to stand in judgment of anyone. If there's someone in your family or neighbors or someone at work that you need, that you're struggling with, I want you to think about how you can go to that person. You know, bridges are never really burnt because the way to repair them is to go and to say, you know what? I was a jerk and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's sacrificial love. That's true community. And I just feel like as we go into this next time, and, and next week we're talking about surrendering, I just want us to have this moment of surrendering right now. Surrendering to God, to His Spirit, and to what He's leading us into. Because I think it's going to be the best that we've seen yet. So... I'm going to break this bread and I'm going to take the cup, but then we're, I'm going to walk off and I want you to, to have a moment to think before you take communion by yourself.
together by ourselves. In 1 Corinthians, um, Paul writes, and he's trying to explain this, and he says, you know, when we drink from this cup, aren't we taking the very life and the very blood of Jesus into ourselves, Jesus himself? When we break the bread and we take bread, aren't we taking the very life, the very body of Jesus into ourselves? And he says, you know, because there's, there's one loaf and because we're breaking it, we're giving pieces to each of us. We have our little packaged ones. But we're giving pieces to either. He says, does Christ become fragmented because we're, we're thinking about we're going to take little pieces? No. Christ doesn't become fragmented. What happens is we become unified in Christ. That's what communion is. That we become one. One community. One people. One faith. One baptism. One love. So that the world will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another.